We are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Lee usually likes to introduce me by saying we work shoulder to shoulder, and I'm always quick to say that's because I'm the only other guy on staff that's like five that's foot right. six. That's you right. Know? I love it. Yeah. Hey, good to see you guys today. Thank you for having me. Man, what an honor. Seriously, I look out at this room today and I see so many men that I respect, that I look up to, many of whom you've helped form and shape me into who I am. And I'm so thankful to be able to share a little bit about my story with you today, because that's what we get to do here. If this is your first time coming to Brotherhood, this is an awesome opportunity for people to share about how God has impacted our lives. Psalm 107.2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story And that's what I get to do with you guys today. I'm gonna pray and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what an incredible opportunity I have to just share how you have changed and impacted my life. God, this is what this is all about. Lord, thank you for the life transformation work you've done in me. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in each man in this room. Lord, may we just use it today to get better together as we continue to pursue you. We thank you for it, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I have been at Church on the Move the overwhelming majority of my life, and I know not everybody in here goes to Church on the Move, but I just wanna say I have seen the benefits of being planted in a church. In fact, four generations of my family called this church home, and this past Saturday, my grandfather, my dad, myself and our families, and then my two kids were tearing up a kid's classroom somewhere. We were four generations of my family was here this past Saturday night. Church on the Move has impacted me deeply. I have seen lived out, Psalm 1 says this, that blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. I'm the type of person that, when I read that, I really, the part that trips me up all the time is how yielding fruit is seasonal. You're gonna be planted anywhere, you're gonna go through seasons of where, man, it feels like it's up and to the right, but you also go through seasons where it doesn't feel like you're yielding much fruit at all. I'm on Strengths Finder, for example, my number one strength is an achiever, which means I wake up every day and the day starts at zero. Anybody else like this? Like it's another day. We gotta accomplish something today. A good day off for me is um, like a good Sabbath. I'm gonna finish a book. I'm gonna work out. Something productive has to happen today. So I read that and you see, oh, you yield fruit in season. That's a tough part of that verse to read, but that's what it is to follow Jesus, to be planted. And what I've found in my life is that being planted and going through those seasons in a community of faith that you can depend on is deeply formative and God uses that to work in your life. And I think that a lot of people, oftentimes they uproot themselves so much, they don't yield fruit in season. They just are always looking to stay up into the right. And when I think about that, I think about what God has done in my life at this church. I think about the highs and the lows of growing up in a church family and community. I've experienced some incredibly high highs, some incredibly awesome things God has done in my life here at Church on the Move. Uh, I met my wife here. My wife was working on staff at 180 and I remember um, I was volunteering up there 
And I went up and asked her out. And she said, well, let me check my schedule. And I said, well, you're booked with me next Tuesday. And so six, seven, we're coming up on six years of marriage um, this September. We have two precious kids. Ella Robin, she's four years old. My son, Theo, he's 10 months old now, actually 10 months old today. So thankful for what God has been able to do in my life. Uh, Being a part, as Lee mentioned, being part of launching our Broken Arrow campus was so much fun. Now being part of our Tulsa team and coming back and reopening this church out of COVID has been such a blast. God has done some incredible things in my life and I've been so thankful to be a part of it here at Church on the Move. Also being a part of a church family, I've experienced a couple of lows. Heck, COVID was a hard season being shut down. Coming out of that, um, my wife had a miscarriage following that. Any of you that have walked with your wives through that know that that's a challenging season. But I will tell you, the most formative experience that I've had was when I was 19, my mom, after a seven-year battle with cancer, died at just the age of 40. My dad and I were actually talking about this just last week, how the doctors told him at one point, this was so rare, like maybe one in a billion chance that someone this age dies of this cancer. I, in fact, I was telling Lee last week, the only other time I've stood on this stage and spoke was at her funeral, which was now 10 years ago. That deeply, deeply formed me. See, growing up at Church on the Move, I was spoiled, very spoiled. Because when you grow up at a church like this and you grow up with the foundation of a teaching pastor like Pastor Willie George and now carried on by Pastor Witt, you realize like when you get outside of these walls, you realize, man, you know a lot about God. Like I knew my Bible well, 19 years old, I knew a lot about the Bible. I had great Bible teachers, I had great youth pastors, I was spoiled when it comes to knowing a lot about God. In fact, I would say one of the great things about being in seminary right now is I'm realizing how much I already know and how great of a foundation Church on the Move has given us. And I look back and I was like, I had great parents. Dad, my dad did a phenomenal job teaching me about God. And yet, when my mom passed away, I was met with a crisis of faith. Who is God, really? What is he like? Why does why, why did this happen the way that it happened? I am the type of person that I really like numbers. My undergrad is in finance. Business calculus was like, I enjoyed that kind of thing. See, in my mind, like things need to make sense. I've always liked math because there's an answer. There's a formula. There's something like we can make sense of this. And whenever you go through a loss like this, it's really, really hard to make sense of everything going on. It's hard to wrap your mind around everything. And so now here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to this God I don't fully understand. I don't really get it. And so my, my mind began to work a little bit like this. How do I piece together, because I'm not quite sure who God is, how do I maintain some, some semblance of faith following a loss like that? And so I started to just, in my reason-based mind, look at the world kind of like this. Well, I don't believe that all of this, the world, all of us just happened. I think God designed, I think someone designed us for a reason. And when I survey all the religions in the world, 
and I look at each of them, God seems like the most plausible. And if I'm gonna believe that the God of the Bible is real, well, then I might as well believe that some of the events in the Bible happen. That Jesus died on the cross. That Jesus was raised from the dead, because if there is a God, he probably could do that sort of thing. But as far as having a relationship with him, that, that seemed a little weird, based on what, what, what I had experienced. And I can describe that to you. There's not necessarily in anything inherently wrong with that thinking, but as I describe that to you, you can tell how stale that is. See, it's, it's a way of thinking that doesn't require a change of heart. And one of the things that I would tell you today, the first thing that I would tell you that I've learned, because what I just wanted to share today is what I've learned so far, and that is this, that knowing about God is a lot different than knowing God. As I've already said, I've know, I knew a lot about God just from being a part of this church. I look at this in Matthew 7, and I think this is maybe the most sobering, maybe the most scary passage of scripture in all the Bible. Matthew 7, 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I see a guy over here like restoring the sight of the blind, I'm gonna think that person knows God. If I see somebody prophesying, I'm gonna think this person knows God. And it's coming true, like you're gonna think this person has a relationship with the Lord. You're gonna think that they're in good standing with God, but God says that's not the case. We get so concerned with the externals, but God is solely concerned with the heart. And from the beginning pages of scripture, we see this. There's this knowing God, this, what, what does knowing God look like? In fact, we see this word knowing used a lot in scripture. For example, Early on in Genesis, the Bible says that Adam takes his wife Eve and he knows her and she gives birth to a son, right? We're okay with that type of knowing. Like, right, that's the type of knowing we're all fine with. Oh, amen, yeah, one amen. I was talking with a guy about this this week and we were talking actually about kids ministry. And he said, man, I, I love kids, I've got four of them. I said, you don't have four kids because you like kids. You have four kids because you like your wife. I was actually, I was telling Brittany about that. I was telling Brittany about this last night. We were going through it and I actually had more of a personal kind of funny story there. And she said, hey, just remember my dad's gonna be in the room. And I said, yeah, and we want him to stay a table sponsor. So we'll keep it, keep it a little light there. But what we see from the very beginning pages of scripture is that there's a knowing that's deeper than just like external knowledge. There's a deeper form of knowing that knowing about someone isn't the same thing as actually knowing them. You can go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any business profile, Google, you can find out a lot about people. You can find out a lot about me. But you don't know me the way my wife knows me. I don't know you the way your spouse knows you. I can know everything about you and not be in a relationship with you. And that's what we see throughout the pages of scripture. A little more than seven years ago, when this started, God started to deal with this in me. And I realized that head knowledge was the 
basically the extent of my relationship with God, just by chance, the power, the work, the divine encounter of the Holy Spirit. I had someone recommend a podcast to me and the pastor was just preaching the gospel in a way that I needed to hear it. And one of the things he said in there, he was actually preaching on the book of James and he said, intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. And I remember that just grabbing hold of me. What does that mean? It means correct thinking about God does not equal salvation. A lot of us can think the right way, but if God hasn't grabbed hold of your heart, you need to really search yourself and find out if you're saved. And this just wrecked me. Because if it doesn't, this, I can't just reason my way to God is what he continuously said. There's a relationship that God is after. And, and sometimes when you say that, you can make God sound real needy. It's not that God is needy, but God is a king who's after our, the allegiance of our heart. And you can totally think about God in all the right ways. Nothing I've said today about the way I thought was wrong. I do believe that there's an intelligent designer and I do believe that it's God. None of that is wrong, but it hadn't gripped hold of my heart. First John says this, I, I started to ask this question this week. Okay, so if I'm gonna tell guys that it's important that we know God, how do we know we know him? First John 2, three through six says this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. By the way, this is why you continue to stay part of a church after you cross the line of salvation. Because the point is not just to cross the line of salvation. The point of what we do week in, week out and forming in a church community is to help you to live the way Jesus did. We don't just stop once we get past this line and it's like, we're good. No, the point of what scripture tells us to do is we're gonna help people to live like Jesus. In fact, I think John is expounding on what Matthew 28 says. Many of us know the first part of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, there's a comma there, what Dallas Willard calls the great omission and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. So it's our jobs, what we do, the reason we continue to stay part of a church community, whichever one you're a part of, or under the authority and the teaching of pastors is because our pastors are helping us to become like Jesus. This is what we do. It's why we do mid-sized groups. It's why Lee gets up here and talks about this because forming ourselves together, one another in community is part of following Jesus. It helps us to be more like him. That's the ultimate agenda for our life. It's not just life insurance for the afterlife. No, it's to become like Jesus right now in this life. That's what God is after in our lives. And so what this tells me in these two passages we've read in 1 John and in Matthew 28 is that obedience is essential to following Jesus. Obedience is absolutely essential to following Jesus. You can't obey the commands of a person you do not know. I was thinking about it this week. I used to get in fights with my dad when I was in junior high because I just wanted to play baseball year round. All the time, just, man, I wanted to play every weekend, just ate up with it. And my dad firmly, firmly said, no, you're not going to do that. I was mad, I was good. 
I got to play at a high level later. I was like, man, I enjoyed, loved it with everything I got, but my dad said no. Even sometimes my mom was like, can't he just let him play? And my dad said, no, you're gonna go to church. You're gonna be involved in this. I'm not gonna chase you around every weekend. This is literally the conversation we had. And whenever he, I told him maybe six months ago, I remember saying, dad, I just wanna say, all those years you made me keep God first and foremost in my life over my sports, thank you. What is that? I was not always happy about it, but it's living out what First John says here when he says, he says, but if anyone obeys, love for God is truly made complete in them. See, there's sometimes obeying God precedes our love and understanding of it. It doesn't always make sense. Pastor Witt talks about this all the time, Hebrews 11.8. There's sometimes you're leaving and you're taking next steps not knowing where God leads you. Sometimes following God doesn't always make sense, but I'm obedient to him nonetheless. That's part of what we do is following Jesus. Some of these words are kind of challenging when it comes to knowing God. I, I honestly hesitated to use them a little bit because, well, it's just a challenging word. First John's a challenging book when you read it. It's hard to teach. I was listening to a Q&A from a pastor and this teenager, this teenager gets up and he, it's uh, after the service and says, you know, you say we can't get drunk. You say we can't sleep around. You say we can't do X, Y, Z. He goes through this whole list of things and a bunch of people are like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, what can we do? And the pastor just matter of fact goes, well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can get saved. I thought, man, at first it's kind of arresting. It's like, what is it, what do you mean? And what he proceeded to say is he said, see, when you give your heart to Christ, he starts to change your desires. You stop pursuing those other things that you think are most important, you start pursuing him instead. You start to delight in serving him. What does Psalm 1 say? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Another psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delighting in God precedes him giving you desires. You start to delight in the Lord and you start to see that your desires change. Here's the second thing that I would tell you I've learned about following God. And it's that some things can only be dealt with by going straight to the source. Some problems can only be dealt with by going straight to the problem. One of the things that I discovered after my mom passed away was that I started to get to this place where I didn't feel a whole lot. I remember I went to see Dr. Kevin Neiman, who I saw in here today, and he was saying, you know, when you go through anything that's a sort of trauma, one of the temptations is, and one of the things that starts to happen is you start to bubble wrap yourself, essentially. Why, you just don't wanna feel anything. You go through pain, loss, you wanna put up this kind of guardrail from anyone getting close to you. And it makes perfect sense, right? Pastor Witt shared this a couple weeks ago when he talked about his daughters, how when he's putting them to bed is when he realizes how vulnerable he is. Why? Because when you love something, that's why C.S. Lewis said, if you don't wanna get hurt in life, love nothing. Don't love anybody, don't love your dog, don't love your job, don't love anything that you could possibly lose. If, that, if you want to avoid all pain in life, that's the way to do it. 
And so it's only natural that when you go through some sort of loss that you start to box yourself in. And when I really, when this really started to become real to me is as my daughter started becoming a toddler and I realized that I was most comfortable with her about this, this distance away. Because the few times that I would allow myself to get down on the floor and build blocks with her or play with her and watch her laugh, there was too much joy for me to be comfortable with, too vulnerable, heart too attached. So it's best to just build this wall and not let anyone in, not even those people closest to me. And it makes sense, right? I mean, I've, I've seen a, a wife ripped from her husband's hands. I've, and, and even all of us are gonna bury our parents one day. That's natural, we expect to do that. But the worst thing I saw in that whole process of losing my mom was watching two parents bury their child. And it's the worst thing that I think you can see or experience is watching two grieving parents say goodbye to their daughter 40 years too early. And so it's natural that when you deal with real problems and you go through real trauma, you start to just, man, I don't want anybody to get very close to me. I don't wanna let anybody in. So how do you deal with that? How do you get to a place where if the first point is talking about salvation, the second point we're talking more about sanctification, how do I deal with things so that I can be uh, more of who God has called me to be? How do I get over this so that way I can experience God's flourishing and his plan for my life? Because the whole point, you hear people talk about going back and dealing with problems like I'm about to. The whole point is not for us to stay there. The whole point is to deal with it and move on so that we can experience God's richness and fullness in this life now. It's not for us to stay in the past, it's to deal with it so we can be better version of ourselves today. And so how do you deal with this? How do you get, how do you get past past trauma, past hurt, past pain, so that way you can really be more of who God's called you to be today. I was reading recently, I have been reading the um, Lord of the Rings series. My wife bought these for me about a month ago, and um, I was reading the, in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, and there's just a tremendous scene or, or part in the book that's not in the movies. And in this scene, Hopefully you know the plot. The movies came out 20 years ago if you haven't seen them, but the whole point of it is that you take this ring and this ring of power. The whole point is the good guys are taking this ring of power to destroy the Dark Lord Sauron. And this power is really the whole plot of it is this journey they're on to destroy evil. And Frodo is just bemoaning. He is distraught that he has come to the ring. It's been passed down for passed down to him from a family member. He's talking to Gandalf. 3,000 years we could have destroyed this. Why did nobody do anything about this? Why has no one done what was necessary and destroyed it? And Gandalf says, well, it's not so easy. See, this ring has a way of attaching itself to the person who carries it. In fact, go ahead, cast it into the fire. And Frodo takes this ring and he walks over to the fire and he can't let it go. And Gandalf chuckles and he says, see, the thing's already got you. This thing has hold of you. And Frodo, to himself, realizes the weight that he's carrying and besides, Gandalf says, 
Besides, this thing can only be destroyed where it was forged. It was, can only be done away with where it was created. And what I think we see, the beauty of what Tolkien's talking about, the things that have hold of us have to be dealt with where they were formed. This is why we deal with men, so many men on a regular basis that have issues with their dad. They're saved. They're following Jesus. But there's hurts they have not gotten over because they've got to go back and deal with that. And you know this practically. You know this practically that sometimes even at your place of work, that it's a lot easier to walk around with a fire extinguisher putting out fires instead of dealing with the person lighting matches. So we, we stay really, really busy, working hard, taking care of exterior problems instead of the problem. This is just how we're wired. We don't really want to deal with the problem. No one wants to take the ring and go to Mount Doom and destroy it. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do what's really difficult. We love to deal with the outside. And even worse, sometimes we convince ourselves that we've got a hold of it. We're in control. How does this look? Well, I mean, I can, I can stop drinking when I want. Go ahead, cast it to the fire. I can stop watching porn whenever I want. Go ahead, stop, throw it in the fire, stop. Stop that inappropriate relationship we have at work. Oh, yeah, go ahead, throw it into the fire. See, we think we have hold of it, but it's got hold of us. This is what was so powerful about the last story that Blaine was able to share. He said, I wasn't talking about just real, like willpower. I'm talking about real heart change. It's not something we just get over. It's not something that we just think, we think it's so easy to just deal with, but we've been unwilling to go on the journey. I want, to, I want you to see this. John chapter five, Jesus heals a lame man. And this is so interesting. Pardon me just a moment. One man who had been there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now this is what's fascinating. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to be taking up your bed and walking. But he answered them, or, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, well, who is it that said this to you? And the man did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus runs into this guy and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that healed him. Okay, they, he knows they're looking for Jesus. And as soon as he finds out it was Jesus, he throws him under the bus. This Jesus heals him. And then a few verses later, he says, yeah, hey, you guys are looking for him? Yeah, there he is. Completely throws him under the bus. 
Jesus has told him, go and sin no more. Something worse may happen to you. Here's, here's what, I, what I see in this text. What I see in this text is it is possible for you to be healed physically without being made whole spiritually. It is possible to deal with the exterior problem. And this is what Jesus does. He's healed. But this person, he's no friend of Jesus. In fact, the next verse says this, for this reason, the Jews sought to kill him. This man completely betrays him. Amazing work has been done in this guy's life. And yet here he is quickly to throw Jesus under the bus as soon as he gets the opportunity. My thing today, guys, whenever I'm saying this, is not to leave you in your past. My plan is not to say, go back and deal with something and just stay there. No, the point is to deal with it so we can experience a better version of ourselves today and experience God's flourishing for us today. But when you're met with a wall in your life, you have to confront it head on. The way I had to do this is I was seeing Dr. Neiman and one day he gave me um, homework. And so naturally I didn't go back for about a year. I was like, man, I'm paying you, you're giving me homework. Like it's just like seminary. It's like, you know, I'm paying you to grade my paper type of thing. And so he gave me homework and he said, I think your issue why you struggle to feel things, why you struggle to allow yourself to attach to other people right now is because you have not properly mourned and dealt with the loss of your mom. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to write a letter. And I just want you to write it to your mom. But here's what he said to me. He said, but I don't wanna hear it like the, oh, nearly 30-year-old seminary educated pastor. I don't want to really care what he has to say. He said, I want to hear what the teenager had to say, but didn't. And so I did. And I remember starting that letter and anger, complaining, feeling like, why'd you give up are the types of things I'm writing in this letter. Things that I don't know to be true, things that I don't know were ever thought or said. It sounds like a teenager. Irrational. Breaking as I write it. But I'll tell you the part that really was healing was about halfway through the letter, the adult started writing. And I just got to say things like, Mom, I miss you. I met my wife. You would have loved her. I have a daughter. And she's named after you. Man, every birthday is hard. Every Christmas is hard. But man, I miss you. I can't wait to see you again one day. I can't wait for you to meet your grandkids. Tears breaking. I've never cried that hard in my life. And even still, I can't talk about it without getting emotional. Friends, sometimes the reason we can't experience joy in our life is due to unexpressed sorrow. They go hand in hand. You have to be willing to express those things your heart most longed for and didn't get to experience what your heart most wants today. We have to allow ourselves to go back and deal with that. And here's the thing, 
what I started seeing God do in my life after that is more of a willingness to put down the iPad and get on the floor and build a blocks with my daughter. <laughs> Just this past Monday, I was writing this message, which, you know, really important, right? And sitting there and I'm sitting on the couch and my daughter comes up to me and she said, Daddy, Daddy, will you play with me? And so I closed the, closed the iPad, set it down on the couch, set it down on the coffee table, get down on the floor, and I played this Anna and Elsa matching game for the 147th time, which is just the worst thing ever. <laughs> but it's so much fun, so much joy, so much hope. Pastor Witt asked me this week, whenever I was preparing this, he said, what's at stake, Chris? And I was thinking about that. What's at stake if I don't deal with that wall I've put up in my life with other people? What's at stake is 14 years from now when my daughter leaves my house, as a, per, as a man and a father who represents God in her life. Because men, those of you that have kids, we say we, we have a heavenly father. For us, a lot of people associate their view of God with us. We're standing in that place in a way in our families. And what's at stake is if I don't deal with that wall, 14 years ago, or 14 years later, my daughter leaves my house thinking that yeah, she was provided for, but her dad really didn't want to connect with her. My dad kept me at arm's distance. And God forbid that becomes her image of God. Yeah, good, but at an arm's distance. That's what's at stake for me. What's at stake for you? What's, what's at stake in your life? Who do you risk alienating if we're unwilling to deal with things that hold us back? Or maybe a more positive way of looking at it is, what joy is possible if you're willing to go and deal with it? What joy is possible if, like in the Lord of the Rings, someone and you are finally able and willing to make the journey? Read this in Romans 7, because I think it sums up this really well this tension we feel between knowing that we're a new spirit in Christ, but also knowing that we're at war with ourselves in a way. Everything I've described is this battle that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And I love the message translation. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? And I love this, verse 25. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Part of going on that journey, guys, I think is getting everything on your side in that battle against yourself because we're all in one. Until Jesus comes back and makes this right, that's a battle that we have to keep fighting. The last thing that I'll tell you today is this. Third point is that I've seen it over and over again that God always shows up in our weakness. He just always does. I love this. In your weakness, he is strong that theme for the year. I remember 
I'll close with this. I remember the listening to that message. That first part that I've already shared with you guys was powerful, but the next part really got me. He said, he said intellectual to assent to correct doctrines, not salvation. And this part arrested my heart for the better. He said, if you don't love God, you don't love people. Stop calling yourself a Christian. The commands that 1 John talks about are those. What Jesus said was most important, love God, love others. And I remember crying out in that moment and telling God, God, I don't love you, but help me to. And I saw God show up in my life. God shows up whenever we ask him to help us. You cry out to him and you say, God, I don't love you, help me to. I continue to pray that prayer today. I continue to say, God, I need your help loving you. I say it about my family. God, I need your help loving my wife. God, I need your help loving my kids. Because without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, guys, we're incapable of doing that anyways very well. You, sh you ask God to show up in your life. You ask God for strength to have a greater capacity to love those around you, to strengthen your joy capacity, to take the necessary steps to deal with things so that you can do it better. And you'll see God show up in your life. He always shows up. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. Thank you for each person in this room. Thank you for each man in this room. Lord, I just thank you for using us today, using my story, my message. Lord, I hope that it helps people today. And Lord, just help anybody that's wanting to pursue you, continue to pursue you, God, because that's what we're all about here. Lord, we thank you for it. What an awesome opportunity we have to continue to pursue you this year. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.